0: Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This week we're stretching the holiday season a little bit further, bringing you a repost from one of our sister journals, Practical Neurology. This feature investigates the links between neurology and detective writing and includes contributions from Andrew Lees and Oliver Sacks, and we thought you might enjoy it. Here it is. A stranger in need of help. Distressed friends and family. Harm without obvious cause. Some odd footprints and unreliable recollection. A mystery. A case for a detective. Or perhaps, say, Andrew Lees and Peter Kempster, a neurologist. they've put the case to practical neurology that making a diagnosis in the specialty is sometimes no easier than solving a veiled crime, and that the best neurologists are a match for Sherlock Holmes. Here's practical neurology editor Phil Smith questioning Andrew Lees, director of the Queen Square Brain Bank for Neurological Disorders.
1: Andrew, welcome. We're delighted to receive this paper. Thank you for agreeing to talk more about it. So... Um, How do you see the relationship between neurology and detective writing? Uh, Well, when I was training
2: at Queen Square, William Goody, one of my teachers, recommended when I started uh, as a registrar that I ought to read the complete works of Sherlock Holmes and... uh, also actually Proust, A La Recherche Tom Perdu, and I wondered really what planet I'd arrived on. In fact, I'd arrived, of course, on the planet of Queen Square, and I, I was familiar with um, Sherlock Holmes. I'd read a lot of it uh, at school, but I hadn't really made a connection directly with um, my career choice speciality at that time. And what I realised uh, as time went on was that when we're searching for neurological clues to reach a diagnosis, we, we often empathize with detectives who are trying to solve criminal cases. And, uh, for example, the, the common use of skills such as observation and neurology to a certain degree as a visual art, our identification of clues, uh, which is really the elicitation of signs, uh, and reasoning by abduction so that one's never a hundred percent certain. We're never dealing in absolute certainties in our everyday practice.
1: My case histories often start like one of Sherlock Holmes' cases. There's a knock at the door.
0: Here's Oliver Sacks, best-selling author and professor of neurology at NYU School of Medicine.
1: There's a phone call. There's an incident like this which introduces the patient and their problems. Often the observation starts before the person opens their mouth. I observe the way they come in, stand, the way they sit. And so uh, I observe them, I examine them. I always get a, as detailed a history of their problems as I can and to expand out from this into, into something of a biography so I know what sort of life these people are having.
3: The man who mistook his wife for a hat. Oliver Sachs. It was obvious, within a few seconds of meeting him, that there was no trace of dementia in the ordinary sense. He was a man of great cultivation and charm, who talked well and fluently, with imagination and humour. I couldn't think why he had been referred to our clinic. And yet there was something a bit odd.
2: And then neurologists are also very fond of uh, using the detective story as a a favorite narrative vehicle for clinical histories and case reports. Uh, So in common with detective tales, uh, our case reports are often reassuring, affirming the belief that we can diagnose even very obscure neurological maladies with our, uh, our diagnostic acumen
1: then um, i tend to make brief notes when i talk with patients and i then usually i would often go out to the botanical garden which was just opposite my hospital and put put things out of my mind and look at the plants but when i would come back an hour later um, somehow my everything would have turned into a narrative which i could then write fluently so um so there's a uh, minute observation at one end and narrative as a form.
0: A minute observation is particularly useful in spotting movement disorders. So says Chris Gertz, who worked at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago with detective fiction writer and authority on Parkinson's disease, Harold Clowens.
4: Well he had an uncanny ability to see things that other people didn't see and he was a very keen observer and could see something that perhaps I would have just walked by. I can remember a single instance where we were walking down the hall after making hospital rounds, and he turned to me and said, did you you see that? And I said, well, well no, I, I, we were talking. He says, don't ever say that to me again. Always have your eyes open because you just missed a movement disorder. And I thought, oh my God, this is going to be hard work. So that's very much like Sherlock Holmes, very much like that, that everybody else is in the room, but only one person sees the little detail. And that's a skill that Andrew Lees has. It was a that Harold was just remarkably good at. Just remarkably good at. I
1: remember one of the first talks I saw you give was uh, to do with Ray of Hope, was uh, Ray Kennedy's Parkinson's disease, which you wrote a book about. And uh, did you put your neurological detective powers to work with that one?
2: With the help of BBC and ITV, we were able to look back. Um, Uh, at the latter parts of his playing career when he was at Swansea after he'd left Liverpool and um, detect uh, abnormalities of his body posture. He was holding his um, right arm in a very stiff and flexed way while he was running and that he had some difficulties in, in turning.
0: It may not be coincidence that there are such similarities between Sherlock Holmes and neurologists.
2: Sherlock Holmes was said to be modelled on Joseph Bell, who was the professor of surgery in Edinburgh, but Conan Doyle certainly had connections with neurology. He trained uh, as a physician. Um, he wrote his uh, thesis on uh, and he tabies, wrote his his thesis on tabes, and um, there is some evidence to suggest that he attended uh, some lectures at Queen Square, and in in the case of the resident patient where he talks about uh, catalepsy and uh, it seems clear that he had quite a lot of neurological knowledge
5: the adventure of the resident patient arthur conan doyle a minute later we were in the street and walking for home i can make little of it i confessed well it is quite evident that there are two men who are determined for some reason to get to this fellow blessington i have no doubt in my mind that both on the first and on the second occasion That young man penetrated to Blessington's room while his confederate, by an ingenious device, kept the doctor from interfering. And the catalepsy? A fraudulent imitation Watson, though I should hardly dare to hint as much to our specialist. It is a very easy complaint to imitate.
0: I have done it myself. Some neurologists haven't been able to confine their detective talents to the clinic, turning to fiction to exercise their imaginations. For Peter Gautier-Smith, now retired from consulting at Queen Square, who wrote 31 crime books under the pen name Peter Conway, it all began in a time-honoured way, with a bet.
6: I wrote a a book on um, meningiomas at lunch, uh, not all that long after it had been published. I said to a fellow that uh, it had taken me something like 18 months to two years to write this and um, that it would be easy to write a, a, a book of fiction, a detective book, and his reply was, well, it's very, very easy for you to say that, but I bet you can't do it. So uh, there and then I, I started to think about it.
3: Unwillingly to school, Peter Conway. He listened intently while I told him about Henderson, his pathological specimens and the tuberous sclerosis but I still don't see where the arsenic comes in. I knew that if taken over a period of time, arsenic becomes deposited in the nails and I asked Henderson if he could arrange for a pairing of one of them to be analysed. And did it show arsenic? It did indeed. For Harold Clowens, the detective
0: novel could contain a much more thrilling diagnosis than often the case in mundane reality.
4: The detective work began with a, a case when I was a resident and we made rounds and we were joking and talking about, uh, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if the diagnosis were intoxication? And, and so we came back and he said, oh, I'm going to write this. I said, all right, you write that. I'm not going to get involved with that. And, and he started writing. He did write this first novel that was completely based on our work at the hospital. I mean, that, that is, I mean, the first draft was, you could tell everybody. I mean, it was completely transparent who the characters were. So it did come out and he looked upon himself increasingly with the kind of glee of being a a, a detective.
5: Sins of Commission by Harold Clowens. So there was a chance, a possibility, according to the experts, that Bill Sanders had Meyer Senior. In the end, the experts could not prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he had been given bungarotoxin. Without that proof, there was no crime and no criminal. To Richardson, it was a medical certainty. The diagnosis was correct, and it was on the death certificate. Cause of death, alpha bungarotoxin poisoning. So what was it that Holmes had said? Something about doctors always being the first among criminals when they go wrong.
0: As always, Holmes was right. But of course, for neurologists, solving the crime, making the diagnosis, isn't the end of the story.
4: What's important to realise is that a novel has a beginning, a middle and an end. A chronic disease, and that's what Harold treated, goes on forever. But you can't make a novel out of that. So you can take a segment of a person's condition and write about that and to build it into literature. But Harold was a faithful, caring physician and all his patients were long-term.
0: Oliver Sachs and Peter Gauthier Smith concur.
4: I
1: mean, I can't deny there may be a sort of exaltation sometimes um, in making a diagnosis or recognising a particular phenomenon. Though, again, I want to say this for me often, will be shared with the patient, if it can be constructive.
6: You know, I was interested in the way people coped and the effect it had on families and and on certain behaviour disorders. And, um, And as I say, I got to know both the patients and relatives really very well because very often the patients came with a relative, a close one. And I was able to keep them informed of, uh, you know, what was happening, what research was being done, and there we were. The worst came to the worst, and we could, you know, back up and take people in for a bit to give them a rest, that sort of thing. And I enjoyed doing that. And I think it's got a little bit lost.
0: A little bit lost? Are neurologists today robbed of the time needed to observe, deduct, and formulate solutions? Or... In the days of biomarkers and metrics, are these detective skills no longer needed?
2: I think bedside skills actually are just as important as they were in the foundations of our speciality in the 19th century. Of course, a lot of the diagnostic mystique has been taken away with, particularly with neuroimaging. But, um, you know, things like why do... People with Parkinson's disease have such a varied natural history uh, and why is the course of the illness and the symptomatology so different when you look in the brain and find exactly the same abnormalities? I mean, these are surely things that um, careful clinical history taking and and examination are going to help us solve eventually. The idea that you can do the whole of neurology with ticking boxes and algorithms um, s- seems to me far too simple. I still think that the only way to learn neurology and become a good neurologist is to spend time uh, on the wards, listen, talking to patients, taking careful histories, uh, recording what you you see. My worry is, uh, and this has of course reached an extreme situation in the United States, many, many Senior neurologists no longer see patients, and I, I can't see that that can be good.
4: I think that the skills of young neurologists may be different than the skills that Harold was able to teach me, and that now the way that experiments are conducted, while there's still a hypothesis, technology drives the hypothesis, where. Before observation drove the hypothesis and the ability to see and to see through the forest of all the different distractions, that was, that was an important skill. Now the skills are to see through the limitations of technology and to mobilize them, but it's still detective work.
0: And what about the role of the narrative case history Where do these fit in our era of randomised controlled trials?
1: If you look through most neurology journals now, as you say, they're they're full of series of one sort or another. I think these series are very valuable, but they shouldn't displace case histories. Um, One couldn't have established, say, the relationship of smoking and cancer without looking at a huge population, thousands, tens of thousands of patients over many years. You have to have such studies for, for genetics and epidemiology, but I just um, want case histories to be equally valued, and, and neither can replace the other. When Awakenings came out, there was a very strange gulf between um, all sorts of literary reviews and a complete absence of any medical notice, as if I had done something sort of beyond the pale or out of bounds, or, or maybe not, not interesting or, or not believable. I think now Awakenings and some of my other things are accepted. I was very pleased when my latest book got, got reviewed in Brain. I mean, I think finally I'm, I'm being accepted as a, an odd but, but precious part of the medical establishment.
0: And detective fiction itself? Do The Adventure of the Resident Patient and Unwillingly to School belong alongside the BNF and the Textbook of Clinical Neurology.
2: Oh, I would encourage trainee neurologists to read detective stories. I, I think they reflect back to us some of the images of our best selves exercising our craft. To seem to possess the powers of a Sherlock Holmes and to seek out clues and make deductions can engender the strongest feelings of professional satisfaction.
5: We had all listened with the deepest interest to this sketch of the night's doings, which Holmes had deduced from signs so subtle and minute that even when he pointed them out to us, we could scarcely follow his reasonings. The inspector hurried away on the instant to make inquiries about the page, while Holmes and I returned to Baker Street for breakfast. I'll be back by three, said he, when we had finished our meal. Our visitors arrived at the appointed time, but it was a quarter to four before my friend put in an appearance. From his expression as he entered, however, I could see that all had gone well with him. Any news, Inspector? We have got the boy, sir. Excellent, said
0: Holmes, and I have got the men. The moment of revelation from Arthur Conan Doyle's The Adventure of the Resident Patient. The abridged passages were read by Berta Twizzleman and Laura Templer, and the interviews conducted by Phil Smith and myself, Harriet Vickers. Music thanks to Souls of Nephilim's. If you'd like to listen to the full interviews with Andrew Lees, Peter Gautier smith Oliver Sachs, and Chris Gertz, which include how Robert De Niro learnt to portray a post-encephalitic patient, they're alongside this podcast via pn.bnj.com. This package was produced for Practical Neurology. And watch out for more podcasts from the journal in the new year. Thanks for listening.